Let's say you need to make extra money to pay the bills and keep the lights on. So you get a job delivering food with Uber Eats. Uh, my name is PJ Kanojan, and I work for Instacart, Uber, and Lyft. I live in Nashville, and I first started on Lyft. I am using Instacart. My name is Erica Medrano, and I've done Postmates and Lyft. Or you leave your full-time job with benefits to drive rideshare. The main thing for me is the freedom it gives me. And at the same time, we make a lot of money. That's Oliver. He drives for Uber and Lyft in the Washington, D.C. area. My free time is everything. I have two kids, and I love going to the gym, So, and I love traveling. So anytime I want to do any of those things, all I have to do is turn my phone off and, and do whatever I want to do. So when I was working 9 to 5, I, I was not able to do that. So I don't think there's a downside for me. I love this. Do the hustle. That's right. Bring in some bucks. Work when you want, on demand, on your own terms. Freedom and flexibility, it's got to be a win-win. Welcome to the gig economy. One out of every six people in the U.S. work as freelance contractors, and that number has been rising steadily. Much of the growth in jobs in the United States in the last 20 years has been non-traditional work of some sort, temporaries or independent contractors or app-based gig workers. I'm Paul Oyer. I'm a professor of economics at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. This is a fascinating time for the gig economy because it is just a hard time to find workers, right? So Uber and DoorDash and so forth, they are fighting tooth and nail to have people stay on their platform because they're labor for two reasons. One is there's still some reluctance to work in to be in an enclosed car with somebody you don't know during given the pandemic situation. So that certainly leads to a problem. The other problem is the job market's really hot. So really oversimplifying it, these platforms have two types of workers. They have those who use this as a last resort, job of last resort, or to put it differently, for use this as an alternative safety net. They're like, oh, I lost my job. Kids got to eat. I'm going to drive for Uber for a while while I look for another job. And that group is small right now. <laughs> if you want a job, you can go get one. For many, gig work has significant attractions. It's readily available. If you want a job working for Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, or TaskRabbit, you can get one. It can fill in around your life, not the other way around. Because of this, gig work is popular with those who work in the space. Almost 80% of gig workers report a positive experience with their work, according to the Pew Research Center. But these numbers mask an uncomfortable truth for the gig platform companies. Much of the actual gig work is performed not by the side hustlers, but by the grinders who use these platforms as their principal source of income. And it turns out, when the economy presents other choices, they often go elsewhere. Daniel Coynez is 33 years old and drives for Uber. With a smartphone, I was able to sit there at home in a real low point in my life and be employed within a matter of hours. I didn't have to get dressed up. I didn't have to stand in line. I was able to just go to work. I'm really grateful that this space exists, but I do want it to improve. 
Daniel wants it to improve. And when you fall down the task rabbit hole of the gig economy online, you'll find that sentiment gets amplified a lot. For those who gig as a principal source of income, it is increasingly, as Paul Oyer said, seen as work of last resort. Nationally, 70% of Uber and Lyft drivers, according to the company's own data, are immigrants and people of color. In California and other urban areas, um, New York, the number is much higher. In the Bay Area, the number is closer to 80%. So we're talking about people who are at the very margins of, of the U.S. economy, very, very vulnerable, limited um, sort of community resources, li limited networks in the U.S. Vina DeBall is a law professor at the University of California, Hastings. She thinks a lot about the people who have signed up to work on these platforms. I think that what, what folks who are excited about the quote-unquote gig economy are missing is that um, workers the, 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 the workers have no power. They have no power over um, building a clientele. They have no power over setting prices. They have no power over where they go. They have very little power over their behavior because they are controlled algorithmically in ways that are actually quite powerful. Um, and yet they are told that they are small business people and that there is beyond the obvious precarity and low wages of this work. Beyond all of that, there is something really fundamental fundamentally um, destructive for people to experience extreme control while having no power in their lives. Michael Clifton is an Uber Eats driver. He posted this plea on TikTok and immediately went viral. You know, I wish people knew what it was like to deliver for Uber Eats, Postmates, DoorDash, all these companies. I just spent an hour driving around for a dollar and 19 tip. I mean, would it hurt y'all to tip us, throw us $5? I got a dollar and 19 tip and a $2 from the app. What's that? That's not even enough to cover gas. How, how am I supposed to survive like that? Homeless, I'm there. This that I'm sitting in, it's gone. Four months behind, there's no way I could pay for that. Everything fell apart on me. I haven't been able to sustain myself, provide for myself. And these are essential services. I just wish people knew what it was like. I wish they understood what it was like to drive for these services. It is incredibly demeaning. That's Alexandria Ravenel. She's the author of the book Hustle and Gig and a professor of sociology at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. In fact, a number of the workers that I interviewed actually uh, talk about a high level of stigma that goes along with this work. Some of them lie to family and friends and tell them that they are temping rather than admitting that they are working on these platforms. It's hard to find an area of work that engenders more divergent views than gig work. Is it a pathway towards the future where workers can find autonomy and flexibility and decent compensation? Or is it an exploitative environment where companies can successfully evade historic worker protection laws and save themselves the costs of health care, retirement, and other benefits that provide ballast to life. These are critical questions because gig work has been the source of almost all the growth in the job market over the last decade and has become the refuge of workers without college degrees, the group that has suffered most in the modern American economy and who have been most at risk of precarious and poverty wage employment. As we think about longer, more stable, and more prosperous careers for this group, we need to ask, is gig work a pathway to that future, or is it yet another dead end? 
From the Stanford Center on Longevity, Century Lives is here to start the conversation. I'm your host, Ken Stern. On this season of the podcast, we're exploring the 60-year career, what we want out of work, and what it means to have more meaningful careers over a longer lifespan. Today, we're going to explore the gig economy. We're going to talk to economists, an author, a professor, and we'll take a pretty deep dive into the life of a rideshare driver. And to start off, we need to clear something up. What is the gig economy? Here's Paul Oyer. When I use the term gig economy, I'm really thinking about any sort of freelancing arrangement. And so it's a term that's grown in recent past because of these apps, the Uber and the like. But the gig economy, even though we didn't call it that, it's been around for a long time and it's grown steadily and slowly for decades long before there was such a thing as Uber, and and it still hasn't taken over. You know, about five years ago, there was a cottage industry of economists, and although not so much economists, but more sort of um, business analysts and and consultants and so forth who said, you know, the gig economy is going to take over, everybody's going to be a free agent soon, and, you know, that always seemed wrong, and, and it's definitely wrong because... Freelancing is a really valuable thing for a lot of people and it's grown and it might continue. I think it'll continue to grow because technology's made it easier and easier. Technology, meaning the gig economy that lives on apps. Alexandra Ravenel describes it this way. Gig work is about providing a source of work and income where platforms claim to be bringing entrepreneurship or financial sustainability to the masses. And then I often differentiate between face-to-face gig work, like TaskRabbit and Uber, stuff where the person has to be there typically face-to-face, interacting with a human being or physically in a particular space, as opposed to things like Graphite or TopTal, where the work might be remote. And typically it's a focus on elite gig workers who have a certain level of education or work experience. Is there different parts of the of the gig economy we should consider separately? Yeah, so there are definitely parts of the gig economy that are different. Um, I actually have some research right now looking at what I call elite gig workers or high status gig mm-hmm. workers. This is essentially the gig economy meets McKinsey. And these are gig workers who have a minimum wage of $100 an hour or $1,000 a day. And when I talk about those workers uh, in front of an audience of academics, everyone's like, oh, when can I sign up for that? That sounds great. (laughs) We get too hung up on Uber drivers because they've gotten so much of the press for the gig work. Paul Oyer. But some people at the high end of the labor market have also become independent contractors and gig workers. There's an Uber for lawyers. There's, you know, it's very different from Uber. There's a lot more of a matching process. There's all sorts of of free agents in the high end of the technology market who charge a lot of money and move around because those there are certain segments of law or software development or other things where it's just become easier to transfer your skills more quickly from one firm to another than it than it used to be. Paul Oyer knows what it's like to get hung up on Uber because, well... I drove for Uber. He drove for Uber. I drove for Uber. I did a total of about 50 drives. And it was 
I mean, I just wish I could do that every time I did a study of an industry, right? I mean, you learn so... It was just a joy as a labor economist to be able to write a paper about a group of people and be able to... It's not like I knew the life of an Uber driver, of course, but, like, I knew a lot about the uh, about what did and didn't lead you to make more money, and we had these results in the paper, and I was like, yeah, that makes sense, right? So it was really fantastic from an economist point of view. Now, from a from a actual Uber driver point of view, I thought it was fascinating and I, I really did enjoy it. I'm glad I, you know, I'm, I'm really glad I'm a Stanford professor and, and that's not how I have to make a living. But for the time I spent, it was super interesting. Every, you meet people you wouldn't otherwise meet. You get, you go into these neighborhoods in, in the Bay Area that you wouldn't otherwise go into, right? You pass them on the highway, but now you get to see them. So it was it was fun, actually. I never had anybody who was rude or vomited in my car or did anything <laughs> along those lines. So, it, and what, what also was interesting about it was at the time I was doing it, my stepson was working at Chipotle for the summer. And um, he was in high school or college or something, and he was working at Chipotle for the summer. And after my expenses, we made about the same amount of money per hour. And that really, that, those, you know, our examples at that time, and, you know, over time, maybe you make more or less in one versus the other, but at least at that time, that kind of made an interesting point about the gig economy, which is there are some people for whom working given that they make about the same amount of money after expenses, there are some people for whom working at Chipotle is a much better option, and there are other people for whom driving at Uber is a much better option. So the fact that both of us, you know, that, that people had both those options is better than if they only had one versus the other. Um, so, and for me, like I would have, if, if I have to choose between those jobs, I'll, I would much rather be an Uber driver personally. It doesn't take a degree from Stanford to know that a Stanford Business School prof is pretty atypical for a gig worker. According to the Pew Research Center, the average gig worker is young, low-income, Hispanic, and most typically making deliveries for a food app. And while two-thirds of gig workers describe their work as a side hustle, most of the gig work in this country is performed by the roughly 10 million people who have used gig work as their primary source of income. People like Sergio Avidian. I've been a driver and a passenger on both platforms since 2016. Sergio has been driving for Uber and Lyft for six years, which makes him a grizzled veteran in the fast-evolving and highly unstable gig space. He's also a senior contributor to the popular blog The Rideshare Guy, and he coaches rideshare drivers on how to work smarter. I'm the type of person that if I'm going to do something, I want to do it well and I want to, I want to research it. And uh, to me, it was like a no-brainer. I've been an L.A. resident for 30 years almost, and I live in the San Fernando Valley, so it's a part of no- north side of the city. Uber and Lyft took me to places I had never been in 30 years. So that part is wonderful. Another part that's wonderful is I know for a fact the way I drive, the way I strategize, I know I'm going to end up at the beach every single time. When Sergio started driving rideshare in 2016, it was a lot easier to make money on the platforms because drivers earned a bigger percentage of each ride. At that time, in 2010, Uber was paying 
their drivers $3.25 a mile, which matched actually the cab rates in Los Angeles. Um, fast forward to 2016, when I started, the rates were cut down to about $1.40 a mile. And fast forward to 2022, 12 years later, um, Uber pays their drivers in Los Angeles and in most cities, basically 60 cents a mile, which is ridiculous. So $3.20, 12 years later, with all the inflation and higher costs to run a vehicle, we're at 60 cents a mile. So you could, you could figure out what my earnings look like in 2016 versus now. Yeah, how, do the, um, how does anyone um, stick with the platforms if, I mean, 60 cents a mile is not much more than the depreciation rate for cars. Um, Correct. Uh, how does anyone make a living or, or um, why does anyone stick with the platforms now if, if the, the margin is so small? Well, at the Rideshare Guy, we do yearly surveys. Our yearly surveys show clearly that 85% of all drivers uh, quit in less than six months. Um, so Uber has a massive turnover problem, just like Lyft does and just like every other gig economy company does or app-based uh, gig economy company. So um, the turnover is massive in the industry. Um, you know, I, th I guess it takes drivers six months to figure out that they beat their car to a pulp and they didn't make any money. And then Uber goes out there, does fantastic marketing. Honestly, they do amazing marketing to get fresh blood into the system. And, uh, you know, newbies come, newbies go. But, uh, uh, you know, the numbers are the numbers. I mean, uh, you know, 80-20 rules in the rideshare world, just like with most other corporations, which is... 80% um, of Uber and Lyft drivers or rideshare drivers are very part-time and 20% uh, of the drivers are full-timers. So those are the grinders that their sole income is basically just rideshare. Up until now, gig platforms like Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash have successfully categorized their drivers and delivery people as independent contractors, free agents who come and go as they please and who themselves set the terms of where and when to work. But experts say that this independence can be a mirage. The person in charge is really not the driver. People are under the impression that there is no physical boss watching over their shoulder, but uh, the algorithm is watching you 24 hours a day because you have an app installed on your phone, right? So the algorithm, you know, is something that I, I battle with every time I'm driving because the algorithm is going to send you the rides that it sees fit. Once we get to the passenger, we'll start the ride, then we know where we're going. We could be going a mile down the road to Whole Foods or we could be going to Timbuktu. I have no idea what I'm accepting. Do they even tell you, do you know how much money you're going to make on that trip? Nope, we don't know that either because we don't know where they're going. So if I knew what the job was, maybe I would take it or not take it as, an in as a true independent contractor, yeah. right? So here are the three issues. I don't know what the job is. I don't know what I'm going to get paid, right? So, and their people are still doing this. Right? Okay, here, here, here's my, you know, analogy when it comes to this. So suppose you call my buddy the electrician, right? You tell him, uh, uh, Mr. Electrician, I have a job for you. They go, great, what is it? And you tell him, um, I'm not going to tell you until you get here, which is exactly what a rideshare driver is going through. They don't know the job until they get to the passenger, right? And then if he's kind enough, uh, he didn't hang up on you yet, 
he'll tell you, okay, well, what kind of job is it? Is it like a small, I'm not going to install a couple of light sockets or, or is it a total remodel? And like to figure out what your pay is going to be. And if the customer says, well, I'm not going to tell you that until you finish the job. And they'll, he'll just cuss you out and hang <laughs> up on you. <laughs> right. right. So that's the ride share driver. Yeah. We don't know how we're going to get paid. We don't know what the job is and we're just doing it. Being classified as an independent contractor has all sorts of other negative consequences for those who rely on gig work as a principal source of income. Independent contractors typically do not receive health or retirement benefits, nor are they covered by unemployment rules or other wage and hour protections. In 2019, California enacted Assembly Bill 5, which functionally reclassified many gig workers as employees rather than independent contractors. In response, Many of the major gig platforms, including Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, Instacart, and Postmates, dumped over $200 million in support of Proposition 22 to reverse the law and threatened to leave the state if it did not pass. Prop 22 passed by a significant majority in 2020, though it is still mired in litigation today. But perhaps it matters less than everyone thought, because in the tight labor market of 2022 and in the upheavals of the Great Resignation, Gig companies are struggling to keep workers who find themselves with more choices. Looking into the future of gig work in general, um, you know, things are getting gradually worse. I mean, you know, I gave you the rates, the rate card, right? How much less than 60 cents can we work for? I mean, I don't think there is too much blood left in the driver rock to squeeze over the last decade. It's gotten gradually worse from pay to safety to everything else. There is not a day goes by, by the way. You can Google it today. Who got carjacked or shot on the Uber and Lyft platform? There is one every single day. So, you know, the future is suspect when it comes to the gig economy. Rideshare driver, coach, and author Sergio Avidian. Workers are exposed to an incredibly high level of risk doing this work. So they experience economic risk, sexual risks, including sexual harassment, and in some cases, uh, sexually uncomfortable experiences. Alexandria Ravenel. They also experience uh, the lack of breaks, uh, whether for food, for bathroom, or even sometimes just to catch their breath. Um, these workers in many ways, although the platforms say that they're going to have freedom and flexibility, they actually find themselves, in some cases, with less freedom or flexibility than they would have had if they'd gone for any other type of job. So, so tell me, um, let's talk about your trip down the rabbit hole of the, of the gig economy. Um, what, did, what did you find? So I found that in many ways, the gig economy is a movement forward to the past. So because these workers are classified as independent contractors and they're not qualifying or eligible for many of these workplace protections, they find themselves in a situation that's fairly similar to that of perhaps their great grandparents. You know, they don't have these generations of hard-won workplace protections. They don't have the workers' comp. They don't have the unemployment. They don't have access to benefits. Alexandria, what, what got you interested in the gig economy? 
so I was an early adopter of the gig economy. I was working as what I call a super adjunct. I was teaching for too many schools and teaching way too many classes. And I was hiring people to help me with administrative work. I saw a sign on the New York City subway advertising TaskRabbit. I was like, oh, this is great. I can hire a part-time assistant to run errands for me and help out with data entry. And so I thought it was great. And then one day I was talking to one of my task rabbits and I was like, oh, this is fantastic. I'm an entrepreneur, you're an entrepreneur, we're helping each other. And he was a former sociology major and he put on his sociology hat a bit more than I was doing at that moment and said, mm, no, I'm not an entrepreneur. This is not a great job. This is not what I wanna be doing with my life and proceeded to tell me about a recent task that he'd had. He had been hired to pick up someone's prescription at a local pharmacy, and he thought that was a perfectly normal task. He'd done things like that before. But when he got to the pharmacy, there were problems with the prescription and a lot of back and forth and the credit card wasn't working. And then eventually he got the prescription and it turned out to be a really large bottle of amphetamines. And the client wanted him to mail the drugs to China without doing any type of documentation uh, for customs. And he reached out to TaskRabbit and was like, what am I supposed to do? And after a lot of back and forth, they said, well, you know, this kind of violates the terms of our, our platform, but the client is always right. So you should mail the prescription drugs to China. And uh, this task rabbit said, mm, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And for a week, he carried the drugs around in his backpack and hoped that he wouldn't ever get stopped by the police because how is he going to explain somebody else's controlled substance in his backpack um, until eventually the client arranged for him to do a handoff in a local park which is, of course, also pretty problematic. And he told me this story, and all I could think was, wow, if this is entrepreneurship, this is maybe not the type of entrepreneurship these platforms want to be bragging about. And that caused me to start thinking a lot more about what was going on on these gig platforms and what it could mean for the workers. Um, if you dial forward 10 years, what do you think the gig economy looks like? Is it swallowed up a lot of W-2 jobs? What does it look like, you think? That is my great fear, that in 10 years, we will see many more jobs get swallowed up by the gig economy, that we will discover that the gig economy has been used to weaken unions, that we will see more and more focus on this idea of working on demand, of all the workers having to sort of fight each other and bid for the lowest price. Um, my hope is that it won't get that bad, that we will elect individuals who say, wait, this is a problem. We don't just need to study portable benefits. We need to implement portable benefits. We need to prevent companies from just classifying workers as 1099 workers willy-nilly. Um, but I, I worry that until we see higher wages from worker, for workers, until we see more power for workers, that this gigification is just going to continue. And swallow up more and more jobs. 
I asked Vina DeBall where she thinks the gig economy will be 10 years from now. There uh, is a lot of excitement about changing, quote unquote, the future of work. And it's, it's sort of hard to imagine for me, um, but in the makings of these people who are, are trying to, you know, make millions and billions off of the backs of low-wage workers, um, this, you know, they, they really think that they're doing something exciting, like they are changing people's lives with this type of work. Um, and there's not, I think, a, a deep consideration of, of what it means on a day-to-day basis to not have access to the minimum wage or to be working um, in a dangerous job and not have access to workers' compensation and disability. And so I focus on it is because I think it represents um, a very dystopian future that we could all be heading towards, um, if not in 10 years, in 20 or 30 years. And so I think it's important to understand the problematics of this particular sector or these sectors, um, why and how they are rolling back protections for workers um, that we've had for over a century and how we can stop it. Um, so that all of our jobs aren't aren't gigified in a way that makes it difficult to live um, l- live secure lives and provide for our families after working twelve hour long days. Paul Oyer has a different vision of the future. I would make the counter argument that that well, hopefully that's not true. I can come up with my own dystopian my own dystopian fears usually center more around political polarization or climate disaster than they do around the labor market. Um, but I think my answer to that dystopian vision wouldn't be to try to talk her out of it, although hopefully hopefully, hopefully we could do that if we stopped and went through the details. It would be to say that's really not related to the gig economy. The world she's describing is about the continued polarization of the haves and the have-nots. And the gig economy and some of what we see in the gig economy is a little bit of a symptom of that, but it's not the cause of it. The, the Uberization of the world is not what's going to lead to um, the types of problems you're suggesting. What's going to lead to those problems is we have this just continued market forces that make the uh, economic value of skills more and more disparate to the point where, you know, we lead to the types of situations you're talking about. And finally, we have a take from a content creator for the gig economy who calls himself Hannibal is Hungry. Should you leave DoorDash, kick Uber Eats to the curb, just just forget all these stupid apps, right? Is it time to leave the gig work life and go back to W-2 life? Is the W-2 life a good idea in a year 2022, 2022. And we all know that these apps are getting worse and worse. I don't think these apps want us to be full-time. They want us to be really committed, independent contractors. They want you to find benefits and they want you to find a consistent income, but not with them. How's your mental health right now? Is it full of anxiety? Unworried about what the next day is going to bring? Struggling with money? If you have those things, it may be time to move on from these apps. This gig life isn't for everybody. Mr. Hungary is surely correct. The gig life is not for everyone, but despite all of its manifest failings, the precarity, the lack of benefits, the low wages, the dehumanizing aspect of control by artificial intelligence, millions of Americans continue to migrate to gig work. 
Perhaps Paul Oyer is right, that the relative popularity of gig work reflects the absence of good alternatives, especially for many of the more than 60% of American workers who do not hold a four-year college degree. Would the terms of engagement offered by gig platform companies be so onerous if there were better options for more workers, better pay, better benefits, and a career path out of poverty-level wages? Next week on the podcast, we are going to try to find out, and we're going to ask some of America's best thinkers, how can America again offer more opportunity to more people and make the promise of a 60-year career attractive not just to the well-educated few, but to the hardworking many. The producers of Century Lives are Carrie Thompson, Aaron Slomsky-Pritz, and Cameron Chertavian. Music for this episode was provided by Ramtin Arablui and Audio Network. Century Lives is a production of the Stanford Center on Longevity, where our mission is to support ideas and research so that century-long lives are healthy and rewarding ones. You can find out more about us at longevity.stanford.edu. Support for the Stanford Center on Longevity comes from the Annenberg Foundation, dedicated to addressing the critical issues of our time through innovation, community, compassion, and communication. Thanks for listening. I'm Ken Stern.